Okay, Romans chapter 8, there we go, verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is the very word of God. Many people have developed traditions to begin every new year. You probably have one, or your family does. For the past few years, one of mine has been reading Pilgrim's Progress, which was written by John Bunyan in 1678 when he was in prison. It's the most famous Christian book behind the Bible and the second most sold novel of all time. Number one is Don Quixote, and number three is the Lord of the Rings series. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, also known as Pilgrim, is a believer who leaves the city of destruction, which is an allegory of this world, and heads towards the eternal or celestial city. His journey is punctuated by many encounters and various experiences. Some are encouraging, while others are disparaging. His story is one of a burden being lifted off, of removal of condemnation, a story of new life, of facing doubts, of fighting sin, of seeking deliverance, and of finding assurance despite suffering, and finally arriving to his destination, to eternal glory. On the way, he tastes more of the truth of God by reading the Word, which gives him renewed hope and great joy that energize him to pursue the light 
of the glory of God. Similar to his experience, we have tasted in the previous 11 verses of this chapter glorious truths which have been great reason for wonderful joy during this Christmas and Advent season. Because of the incarnation, the perfect life, the atoning death, and the glorious resurrection of Jesus, there's not now, nor will there ever be, condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free. We have been made alive. We have been given the Spirit of God who now dwells in us. We have been ushered from the domain of death and the flesh to the domain of life and the Spirit. Our passage today brings to light further assurances and applications on this new reality. The mortification of sin or killing sin, the leading of the Holy Spirit, the beginning or the inception of our adoption, and the promise of future glory. The focus of today's verses seems to be primarily on the Spirit of God, not necessarily His person, but rather His work that enables us to apply our lives to the teaching that came before. He is the Spirit of life and sanctification, the Spirit of adoption, and the Spirit of assurance. We will see together how our new identity in Christ relates to these works of the Spirit and both our position and also our application in our Christian life. First, the Spirit of life and sanctification as we see in verses 12 to 13. The first 11 verses of this chapter speak gloriously of our righteous position in Christ, ending with the great Trinitarian truth that the Spirit of God, who is also the Spirit of Christ, now dwells in us and gives us life. We now come to a transition point in verses 12 to 13 where one might ask, so what? Paul's answer is, so then. Because of verses 1 through 11, we are free from condemnation and our debt to sin, and at the same time, we are debtors. Now, no one might want to talk about debt at any point let alone the beginning of a new year. But the basis of our passage today is the reality of the freedom that we have in Christ, that we have been given in Him. In Him, we are simultaneously sinners and justified. In the words of Martin Luther, the great reformer, he says, we are simul justus et peccator, simultaneously justified and sinners. We are free and we have a debt. Our debt is no longer to the flesh to serve it. It is to the spirit. If we look closely at Paul's words here, and from knowing his rhetorical style, it appears he interrupts his argument in verse 12, and we can almost hear him say, so then, brothers, we are debtors to the spirit to live according to the spirit not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. God's work of redemption is immeasurably more gracious than we can ever think or imagine or ever think to repay, that we not only have a debt, an obligation, as Paul mentioned in chapter 1, verse 14, to proclaim the gospel, but we also have an obligation, a debt, to live by the Spirit and not to fall back to the things of the flesh. 
In this debt, we aim not to repay him as if we ever could, but rather freely obey him and live a new life for him. We read elsewhere in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13, that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. There's a mystery here that might be difficult for our minds to grasp, but we have a responsibility in our new life of faith, the life in the Spirit. We know there is no salvation except by the grace of God. At the same time, we are responsible to do that which shows that we have truly been saved, that we have truly been made righteous. God's sovereignty in our salvation does not eliminate our human responsibility. In fact, it accentuates it. For if we were to continue in the works of the flesh, we would be denying that we ever experienced salvation. If you look at verse 13, there is a contingency here in the form of if, then. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If we live by the Spirit, we will put to death the deeds of the flesh. For we are now enabled, empowered, commissioned, even more, we are predestined to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to do the works our Lord has prepared for us since before the foundation of the world. This truth is from Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. And Ephesians 1 verse 4. These works include the killing of sin and putting to death the deeds of the body. Because God in Christ has condemned sin in the flesh, as we saw in verse 3, and in doing so, he killed sin and rescinded its dominion over us, we who are now dead to sin and alive in Christ can put to death the deeds of the body. We too are enabled by the Spirit to condemn sin in our flesh and to kill it. Before this righteousness, we were unable not to sin. That is total depravity. Every aspect of our being was marred by sin and the fall. We were enslaved to a terrible master. But now we have gained the ability not to sin. And so we are able to kill sin through the new life in the Spirit. God gives life to our mortal bodies so that we become capable of putting to death the deeds of the body as we take seriously our responsibility of killing sin. This is not by our own will or by our own power, but by that of him who works in us, as Paul says, by the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in sanctifying us and our work of killing sin also known as mortification of sin, which the Puritans used to use this word, are interconnected. In fact, mortification or killing sin is integral to the sanctification of the Spirit, as one of the commentators said. Now, brothers and sisters, the flesh is dead 
by the grace of God. But the body is still alive and not yet glorified. The senses of our bodies are not fully holy. They are sanctified. They are being sanctified, but they are not fully holy. So let us not be weary of fighting sin. Let us not domesticate it. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Too many people say they struggle with sin, but they are not beaten, bruised, bloodied, or wounded from fighting it. They merely fall back to it and ask forgiveness or say that they struggle with this. Believers, there's a warning to us in these verses. Such conduct is not compatible with the new life in the Spirit. Such conduct is compatible with the life in the flesh. And this kind of living leads to death. While we are called to a kind of dying and killing of sin and putting to death, that leads to life, eternal life. If we look back at chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we know, Paul says, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then verses 11 to 13, Paul says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Believers, in light of this, our obligation to sin is broken. We are free from the tyranny of sin. We have been transformed into freedom and new life. No one can make us sin except by our own choice. But the spirit of life who dwells in us is also the spirit of sanctification that will convict us to kill sin and to do works of righteousness. This is the assurance we have as we move to the next work of the Spirit in verses 14 and 15. The Spirit of life is also the Spirit of our adoption. His leading of us is an affirmation that we are children of God. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. I love the notion of God leading his people. We can see the Spirit of God leading Abraham in the Old Testament to the land of Canaan, Joseph and the patriarchs to Egypt and back or out of Egypt to the promised land. We see the Spirit leading the workers in the temple to build first a tabernacle and then later the temple where God made his dwelling among his people. We see the Spirit leading again the people back from another exile 
to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. We can see him lead prophets, prophets, priests, and kings. We studied Ezra earlier in 2021, and we saw how the Spirit moved in him and others to return to the land. And then we see the Spirit lead Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted. And then we see the Spirit lead him to the cross to be glorified. And now we have the same, we have, we have the same promise that the same Spirit indwells us and leads us. We should think of this not as a victorious army leads captives behind it or as a conqueror leads spoils of war in a procession, but as a loving shepherd leads sheep, as a loving father leads his son to walk right, and as a loving mother leads her daughter to do a task with excellence. Even more than this, the Spirit is not leading from outside, but also inwardly works in our wishes, desires, and hopes, changing not only what we do, but what we desire to do at the core of our being. Remember from Philippians, it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He not only changes what you do, but what you desire to do. To live by the Spirit means to be led by the Spirit. And to be led by the Spirit is to live by the Spirit. Both clauses mean sonship. They mean adoption. In fact, there are only two options because there are only two spirits. The first from which we have been freed is the spirit of slavery, of fear, of alienation, of flesh, and of death. And praise the Lord, we have been made free from that because it has no light, no promise, and no future. The second to which we have been inducted into freedom is the spirit of freedom, of love, of adoption, of life, the spirit of God. He is full of light, of great and eternal promises, of future glory, and of eternal life. Once again, we look back at chapter 6 from Romans. Because of our old self was crucified with him, we are no longer enslaved to sin. Romans 6, 7. Sin has no more dominion over us. The shackles of fear of sin have been broken because we died with Christ and now we also live with him. This life translates into adoption now. We are now adopted. In this age, we are sons and daughters of the King. It is not that we will become children of God in the distant future. You already are. And what a glorious truth this is. The moment of our salvation is miraculously glorious with all its aspects. The inception or the beginning of our adoption takes place at the same time of our new birth as our dead spirit is made alive by the receiving of the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of life, 
the spirit of adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, whereby we become united with him according to the purpose of his will. In our union with Christ, the spirit now living in us is in unison with the spirit of God, both of whom affirm that there is not now, nor will there ever be any condemnation for those who are in Christ, for those who have become sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And just as the Son calls the Father Abba in his prayer in Mark 14, 36, now as adopted children, we too can call him Abba. Our adoption by God through the Spirit ushers in our union with Christ. Now you might wonder, what does the word Abba mean? It is not a Swedish music team. It is the Aramaic version of the word Father. Jesus uses the word to indicate intimacy with his Father. It signifies that we can come to him with confidence. In him, we find compassion. With him, we sense his nearness. At the same time as Father, he provides and protects us who both emanate from him and revere him in our worship. What this should mean to us is that we can approach him with confidence, with awe, with joy, with hope, with expectation, and with anticipation. Many people are suspicious of God. Let's not be suspicious of him. And many people are suspicious of the word of God. Let us not be suspicious of it. Let us not be afraid to approach him and to immerse ourselves in his truth. Unredeemed sinners have the full right to be afraid of God, for he is a consuming fire and has a day of vengeance against sin. And you know what? We were one of them. We were not his children. And some, unbelie- some today in the world, all unbelievers are not his children. They cannot call him father. He might be in his providence a fatherly figure to the world that he governs or a figure of authority to unbelievers. But he is only Abba Father to us, the children of God whom he has adopted and whom he has redeemed. Such children have no more reason to fall back into fear, but the full right, not even the right, just the, this should be a must to us that we approach him with confidence, for he is good and his love endures forever to all those who belong to him. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Lucy Pevensey, the, the youngest of the four children, asks 
about the lion, Aslan? Is he safe? The answer comes, safe? He's a lion, but he's a good lion. And so is our God. He is the almighty lion of Judah, but he is a good God. He is our Abba, our Father. His Spirit lives in us and gives us this confirmation that we are his beloved children. In the last two verses of this passage, we see that the Spirit of life who gives us life sanctifies us and initiates our adoption and leads us to fight sin is also the spirit of assurance. The word spirit, Greek, pneuma, is mentioned 22 times in chapter 8, 20 of which reference the Holy Spirit and two reference our own spirit. This is more than any other chapter in the Bible. But the focus in this chapter is not as much on who the Spirit is, but the work of the Spirit and what He does in our life. With the foremost of His works in this passage being assurance in the life of the believer. Assurance of salvation, assurance of redemption, of adoption, and very importantly in these last two verses, of glorification in the age to come. Many times we ask people what the gospel is, and people stop at salvation. But the good news, which is the word gospel or evangel, is that it does not end at our salvation, but it looks toward the eternal city. The promise of the Holy Spirit to the believers is so important that Jesus said that it is to our advantage that he go away, for otherwise we would not receive the Helper, the Holy Spirit. Now, I wish, and I know that many people do, that we were there at the time when Jesus was walking around. And some of us wish that Jesus was just here among us today. But guess what? Logan, may I borrow the other one? Let us not be distracted. Many people want Christ to be walking among us. But guess what? We have an even greater promise in that the Holy Spirit of God, who is also the same Spirit of Christ, is living in us, in each and every believer. He convicts, he leads, and he affirms our, our salvation and our adoption, working in us sanctification and glorification in the age to come. Our spirit that has now been made alive in him receives assurance every single day that we have been regenerated and made alive. Our spirit has been made alive. We were dead, and now we have been made alive. And he is testifying that we are alive and we are children of God. In verse 16, it says, The Spirit himself bears witness 
with our spirit, that we are children of God. Now, we might be used to look at this concept as somewhat of a judicial law type of concept where you need to have at least two or three witnesses for something to stand. But we should also see the glorious new reality that our spirit, which was dead in sin, and now alive in Christ, has the same mind of the Spirit of God who indwells us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit, new vessels of righteousness. If as vessels we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there can be no other spirit that fills the same vessel. If a container is filled with a substance, no other substance can fill it. So the Spirit of God bears witness to our sonship with our spirit because his spirit is what lives in us and what gives us life. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. There's no more a spirit of death, of fear, of slavery in the children of God. That is the extent of the assurance that he provides us. We are children of God. This is a glorious truth that we should be celebrating. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, we read that in the fullness of time, Christ came to redeem those who were under the law into adoption by which we can cry with hope and joy, Abba, Father. And through which we find that we are sons and as sons we are heirs. It is Christ's joy to give us the kingdom as inheritance. With him, we will inherit the whole universe. Verse 32 says that in this chapter. We'll come to it in a few weeks. The whole universe means this earth and everything, all the lands that people fight over and die every day. God will redeem and restore and give, us, give it to us as an inheritance. Now, we all love God's gifts. We all rejoice in them. Who doesn't like gifts? But look with me at verse 17. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Heirs of God. Brothers and sisters, as children of God, we are heirs of God himself, not only of his gifts. This is a glorious truth that we are heirs of God himself. He has promised us many things, that he will abolish all our enemies. No more sin, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. No more decaying, no more sickness, no more death. He also promised us great things in the time to come. Fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore, seats at his right hand, that we will judge the world with him. 
It will be at the great marriage supper of the Lamb. There will be a great, a great feast of wonderful foods that we will rejoice in. That we will be having unspeakable joy, eternal glory, unquenchable light. But I wish that our songs and the songs of our heart and our prayers would be like Asaph's in Psalm 73 when he said, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So believer, don't ever let the gifts of God or His promises distract you from Himself. Don't let the river distract you from the source of the water. Let God Himself be your great reward, your biggest hope, the yearning of your soul. Let your soul say that He is your portion forevermore. But it seems there's a catch in verse 17. A condition, a stipulation. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. Our inheritance is contingent upon our suffering. More specifically, our future Glorification seems not to happen without some sort of temporal endurance. Basically, no suffering, no glory. We will address suffering more broadly in the sermon on the next passage. But for the time being, suffice it to say that in our union with Christ, we not only identify with Him in His glory, but also in His suffering. 1 Peter 4.13 says we rejoice insofar as we share Christ's sufferings that we may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. These are promises in the Word of God. I am not saying these things for my own self. This suffering is not only a matter of persecution. We've been told in 2 Timothy 3.12 that the, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. And I tell you what, when we came to know Christ in my country, even though we were going through a lot of suffering, I wish to tell you that our lives became easier. They did not. Now add to everything persecution. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But this passage is telling us more than that. And it's not also physical suffering that happens to both believers and unbelievers alike in this life. This passage tells us that Christians have the added suffering of the ongoing struggle against sin. Unfortunately, the word struggle is used by many People to indicate a sin that we may have domesticated. We hear people talk of struggling with alcohol, with pornography, with gluttony, etc., etc., etc. But oftentimes we don't mean that we have fought sin tooth and nail 
and have come out bruised and exhausted, yet victorious. Rather, there's a general sense that what's being done is wrong, but we still do it anyway and then ask the Lord for forgiveness and come to our small group and say, I'm struggling with this. We found a way to turn off the filter. We put ourselves yet again in a position of compromise. We did not fight with prayer, nor plead with the Lord in the watches of the night. We've not honored Christ the Lord in our hearts as holy. No one can or will ever suffer like the man Jesus who endured when he was tempted like us in every way, yet without sin. And he endured to the end until death, the death on a cross, where he killed sin itself. I encourage you to go back and listen to the previous three sermons on this chapter and rejoice in the truth that Christ killed sin, that God condemned sin in the flesh. That is why Christ is seated in glory at the right hand of the majesty on high. So if we suffer for a while like him, how much more will we also be perfectly glorified with him? Christ in us is the hope of glory, and we wait on this hope. We wait patiently and confidently, and one day we will see it, and it will be our reality. Brothers and sisters, the story of every believer is somewhat the story of Pilgrim, who leaves the city of destruction and progresses toward the eternal city. On the way, he encounters many people. Some are believers, mentors, and encouragers. Others are unregenerate, and they try to deter him. Some even have the aspect of goodness, like the person called civility. And those people give him plenty of opportunities to sin and to turn back. He feels the urge to obey those who recall upon him some authority from the past. But he resists and fights and sometimes finds himself bruised, exhausted, and strongly opposed at the risk of death. But despite hardships and struggles through many trials and fights with sin, he finally reaches the celestial city and enters the eternal glory. And it was all worth it. And our story is like pilgrims. We have been made new. Our obligation to sin has been broken. We are on our way to the city of God. But until we come to eternal glory, there is still a certain connection with the flesh. After all, our body is not dead. Nor is it yet fully sanctified. There's some sort of tension felt between the already of the life to come and the not yet of this present age. It's like running into an old teacher from years ago or maybe hearing the voice of a superior officer from a previous career. You might sense some odd urge in you to obey or to revert to your previous self as if you were still under the authority of that teacher or that officer but your obligation to them has been broken. 
it has been annulled, and so is your obligation to sin. So, like Pilgrim, let's fight sin, tooth and nail, knowing that even if we emerge bruised or wounded, victory and glory in the eternal city are guaranteed. For we have been united with Christ in his death. We are certainly united with him in killing sin and in the resurrection. And on our way to Jerusalem, let's be real about the assurance that we have. Most believers, like Pilgrim, have at one point asked questions, struggled with doubts, or faced skepticism. And many, if they haven't yet, will do so one day. Brother and sister, it benefits no one to shelter ourselves or our children from what could face us. Lest once faced with the test, we might falter in our assurance. And you and I know many people who want to protect our children by putting them in homeschool or in a Christian school so that we protect them from the things of the world. Or we put our faith in a cocoon and we don't expose it to anything that might test us. But maybe this is the reason why many of our young people leave the faith when they enter real life or they go to college because they are ill-equipped to face tests of faith. Folks, assurance is not the process of preserving faith by sheltering it from attacks. Assurance is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, leading us to uphold and defend the faith in the middle of attacks of sin, of doubt, and even persecution. Along the way to the glorification that we are promised, some believers seem to have developed an aversion to emotional experiences of the works of the Spirit. We think, yes, God can do it, but he chooses not to store our emotions. On the other extreme, we might know people who want to pursue that emotional experience or feeling every single day. And believers, I think we should pursue delight in the Lord in all experiences he gives us. All of our being should be engaged with the truth of God in worshiping him. Our mind and our soul, our body and our emotions and our feelings. He is Lord over all of us, not just part of us. But whether your emotions feel the assurances of the Spirit is not as important as the reality that he grants us. And sometimes we have to align our own emotions and thoughts with the reality of the Spirit's assurance. Because the assurance is there, it's guaranteed. And sometimes it's hard for us to believe it. The Spirit of God, who leads us in our fight against sin and in our way to the celestial city, is the same Spirit who lives in each one of us believers and grants the same assurance to each one of us and affirms the same union with Christ. So as we begin a new year together as a body, let us strive together to put to death the deeds of the flesh. Let's work on mortifying sin and sanctifying 
one another. It is easier for us to do this in community. It's a lot harder to do it if we're lone rangers. That's why we are given the body. So let's think more broadly together of what could threaten to stumble us into fear or slavery, into doubts or questions or tempting thoughts. Just like we are called to bring sin to the light and to kill it, I believe we are being called to bring these matters of doubts and questions to light and to deal with them definitively. If we don't deal with infections or tumors definitively, we will not experience long-term benefit. I'm always amazed at patients who delay much-needed and recommended tests out of fear of finding out what's going on because they don't want to deal with it. But in our spiritual life, there's no benefit from ignoring sin. There's no lasting benefit from ignoring doubts and questions that come to mind. We know of too many people who did this and were told to do, to do it by parents or friends or well-wishers. And those people only went to let go of the faith altogether and deconstruct or deconvert. Honest Christians should be willing to admit that a faith that is not tested is a faith that loses the opportunity to be strengthened. You don't grow muscles by sitting on a couch. You work. You strengthen it. So if we have doubts or questions, let's bring them up to one another and not be afraid of asking. Let's seek counsel. Let's deconstruct some of the habits or thoughts that may have wrongfully entrenched in our minds and may have skewed our view of the Christian faith. We've all come from certain traditions or backgrounds that we think some of our preferences have become staples of faith. But there are first order things that we all should agree on and leave preferences to matters of Christian freedom. So if we have doubts and questions, let's bring them up to one another. Because in a day and age where deconversion stories and deconstruction stories are plenty and make the news and go on YouTube, it's much better to deconstruct doubts and questions by finding true answers that lead toward life rather than deconstructing the whole faith toward death. For the spirit of life and sanctification is our helper in our times of need, who we have been promised, who we have been given in Christ Jesus our Lord in our new birth. He will engage our minds with truth. He will convict us to forego sin. He will affirm our adoption. He will lead us to endure whatsoever comes our way until the day we reach the celestial city. And I hope you're looking forward toward the celestial city. Because there the glory of God dwells forever. And there, Christ's prayer, high priestly prayer in John 17, will be fulfilled. That we shall be with him. We shall see his glory. And we will be glorified with him. Rejoicing 
throughout all eternity. This is the Spirit. The Spirit's work in our lives assuring us of that. Let us pray. We praise you, O God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for the work you have done in our lives, that from eternity past you have foreordained that we would be called children of God, that we would be relieved from sin, that we would be freed from slavery, that you would break the yoke of tyranny, of sin in our lives, that you defeated our enemies, that you have given us life, that you have brought us together in a body, that you have given us your Holy Spirit to work in us every day, life, sanctification, conviction, reminder of adoption, and glorification, and the promise that we will be with you one day. So let us rejoice together today. Let us take on this new year with full hope and joy and aspiration that you will do great work in us and among us. We thank you that you have united us to Christ in his death and you have united us in his resurrection. And as we await that day, we pray, come Lord Jesus. We pray that you would come and put an end. Put an end to all things that turn our eyes away from you. And bring the eternal kingdom that has already started to fulfillment so that we may rejoice in you. And sit at your right hand and have pleasures forevermore. We thank you for the hope you give us. And until the day that our faith will become our sight, we ask that you would remind us by your grace that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God himself and fellow heirs with Christ. Be glorified in our lives in Christ's name. Amen.